Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mira, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it's really a great pleasure for me to see a full house tonight in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now are a few great exhibitions. I'll name two of them, Superheroes in Gotham on our second floor, which shows how important the link between New York and our superheroes like Superman and Batman and Spider-Man has been over the course of many years. And here on our first level is a wonderful exhibition that opened a shorter time ago, Silicon City, Computer History Made in New York, uh, an exhibition which also links New York to a great string of accomplishments, this time in technology and innovation. Tonight's program, The Witches, Salem 1692, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. And as always, I would like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great generosity, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. I'd also like to thank and recognize some trustees in the audience this evening, beginning with our board chair, Pam Schaffler. Pam, thank you for all your due on our behalf and your great leadership. And Pam's colleagues, Susan Danilo, the chair of our chairman's council, Suzanne Peck, and Eric Wallach. Thanks to all of you. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. There will also be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of our speakers' books will be available for sale in our museum store. We are thrilled to welcome Stacy Schiff back to the New York Historical Society. Ms. Schiff's book, Vera, Mrs. Vladimir Nabokov, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in biography. She's also the author of Saint-Exupéry, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and a great improvisation, Franklin, France, and the Birth of America, which won the George Washington Book Prize. In addition to her books, Stacey Schiff has written for many national publications, including The New Yorker and The New York Times. She's the recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. And in 2011, she was named a literary lion by the New York Public Library. Our moderator tonight is Leslie Stahl, and we are thrilled to welcome her back as well to the New York Historical Society. Ms. Stahl has been a correspondent for CBS's 60 Minutes for over 20 seasons. Prior to joining 60 Minutes, Ms. Stahl was the CBS News White House correspondent during the Carter, Reagan, and George H.W. Bush presidencies. During much of that time, she also served as moderator on Face the Nation, CBS News's Sunday public affairs broadcast, where she interviewed Margaret Thatcher and Yasser Arafat, as well as virtually every top US official. She has a collection of Emmy Awards for her interviews and reporting, including a Lifetime Achievement Emmy. And now as I welcome our speakers to the stage, I wanna ask that you please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. Now, thank you, and welcome to our speakers. Wow, it's great to be back. Stacy, 
I'm so glad to be interviewing you on this particular subject, because I grew up in Salem. <laughs> I think that means I get to interview you, doesn't it? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, okay, well, I took some notes, because I love the book, of course, and I read it with special interest. Um, so you write that the story of the witches of Salem is like a fairy tale. And as in a fairy tale, you say, the villains are women. And this is a quote. We have turned a story about women in peril into one about perilous women. This woman can write, by the way. <laughs> so tell us how the tale begins. It begins um, the way it has often begun in New England, where two little girls begin to convulse and scream. And that happens apparently all the time in Salem. <laughs> I'm sure you, it sounds familiar to you. Um, the same thing will happen, it has happened before, it happened in 1688, it will happen again in 1693, but in 1692, and in all of those cases, um, the afflicted girls are thought to be bewitched. What will happen in 1692 that has not happened in the earlier cases is that um, when the afflicted girls begin to identify the people who they believe have bewitched them, one of those people will confess to witchcraft. And with that early confession, three women are originally named, one of them will confess. And with that early confession, everyone will believe that witchcraft must be at work because it is now undeniable. And from that moment uh, on, and these first three women are very vulnerable women. Um, they're women, they were the, the most likely suspects. One is a slave, one is a very litigious woman who has pretty much annoyed every neighbor she has, and the third, um, is a beggar woman who has also um, rather clawed at the social fabric. Once those three women have been accused and the accusations begin to radiate out, very different kinds of people begin to be accused. But in a way that has not happened before, an epidemic begins to blossom. So pretty soon, you can't see in the sky because there are so many people flying around on <laughs> broomsticks or whatever. Um, how, to, just to set the stage, how is what you found out different from what we all know about the Salem, which is from The Crucible, from Arthur Miller's play. Is no, it very different? Or? It's very, very different. Um, you know, over the past couple of weeks, I've made this amazing discovery that half of America descends from the Salem witches, or the, anyone involved with Salem, and the other half seem to have starred in The Crucible in high school. So um, I'm, I'm just going to assume that most of you got something of what you know about Salem from The Crucible. Um, Almost everything about that story, except the names of the protagonists, is, is different. Arthur Miller was writing fiction and an allegory. Um, for example, the person whom I just mentioned, who's the woman who confesses to witchcraft, um, is an Indian slave named Tidiba, who works in the minister's house where the witchcraft breaks out. In Arthur Miller, she becomes an African-American slave who does voodoo. So, um, and who plays a very different role and is a pretty much stock, sort of stereotypical character, but, but isn't the person who confesses to flying to Boston and, and, and engaging in a diabolical Sabbath. So there, there are quite a few things that are different. Um, what was your other part of the question? Well, I just... What's different? Oh, I think we all forget just how quickly the thing took place, how it isn't a, a misogynistic moment. There are girls making these accusations of witchcraft. The victims are five of the victims who will hang are men, including a minister. Um, I think our, we generally believe the witches burned. In fact, they are hanged. Um, there are just any number of misconceptions about the political and economic and cultural milieu, I think, in which this takes place. Be before we get into some of the characters and the trials, 
the details. What, talk to us about Salem in 1692. Was there something different about that place in that time? What about that winter? Was, it, was the weather particularly harsh? What was going on there for this to grow like that? It, it, it's, it's a good question. It's very incendiary at this point, despite the fact that it's freezing. Um, Salem Village is a tiny agrarian community about five miles from Salem Town. It has no autonomy of its own. It has no institutions of its own. So it needs to appeal to Salem Town to settle its differences, of which it has many. And it is now on its fourth minister. New Englanders seem to believe that ministers were very important, but they didn't need to be paid. Um, so there are very often um, contentions between parishioners and their ministers about salaries. And at this moment in Salem Village, one of those arguments has really come to a head. Um, and the minister and his, and his family are living in a parsonage which is extremely cold because the parishioners have refused to deliver his firewood, which is part of his salary. So, and these are the, these are the two girls who are initially um, afflicted in some way. They're living in a household where their father and uncle is under siege from his parishioners at the end of an extremely long and particularly Arctic winter. And they are hearing angry voices um, in the parlor very often because the angry congregants have been stopping by to discuss their grievances with their minister. So they have these loud voices in their heads. I think seeing your um, protector, your father or your uncle, um, under fire by his by the community must have been must be a pretty traumatic thing to to hear. But you write that Salem t village or town was right on the edge of the wilderness. And people were attacked by the Indians. Children were kidnapped by the Indians. This, this was a harsh, harsh place, even without it being the coldest winter of all time or whatever. I think that's another thing we tend to forget is um, most of the, um, everyone at this point knows someone who has lost a life or a livelihood because of the prior Indian War, which was extremely traumatic and very bloody, the costliest war in terms of lives in American history and a new war is about to break out, and there are constantly Indian raids. So you could come home from Boston to find your family had been carried off by the Native Americans. You could, you could look out your window when you were taking care of your children and find that it, someone was trying to come in um, and kidnap your children. There are any number of stories of abductions and murders. And the frontier is about 70 miles from Salem at this point. So there, the vulnerability is very intense. You write, this is one thing about many things you write about. This is really a good book, if you like history. Um, and if you don't, why are you here? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I was teasing them. The, you write about this little community being, you say, the most educated town in the world, that a majority of the girls were educated. And a lot of the people that you write about went to Harvard. Harvard was there already in 1692. Why do you think such an educated place succumbed to a fairy tale? Well, I, two things. It, it, is the most, it is said to be the most educated community in the history of the world because it is the most pious. And in order to pray, you had to be able to read. So the literacy rate um, is extremely high. This is true of the entire Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, and that really goes hand in hand with Puritanism. I did not know that reading and writing were taught separately in the 17th century. So although all of these children can read, not all of them, most of them cannot write. It's completely different. We think of them as completely inseparable, but they were not. The men who will decode the witchcraft, and here, of course, we enter Mather territory, um, who will decode the witchcraft, who will guide the court, who will prosecute the cases, 
are the best educated men in Massachusetts. Most of them are Harvard educated, which is sort of meaningless because that's the only place you could go to school. Um, but um, Clearly but, they did not get a very good education. <laughs> but, but they did because witchcraft was a science at the time. And we're talking about whole libraries filled with books on witchcraft, um, which to them was a science and a, and, a, and a study for the elite. So all of the best educated, and, and, and here we touch on territory that is familiar to us, I think, where the experts are leading us astray in this particular case. The experts are very expert on a subject which we now know to be somewhat delusional, but to their minds, this was a legitimate um, field of inquiry. Flying around in broomsticks. Well, Leslie, I just have to remind you, there's no flying until 1692, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, English it was science until... English witches around. didn't fly, only continental witches got to fly. <laughs> until 1692 when that changes. Um, let's, can we talk about the women in, in this, at that time in that Puritan environment? Um, what was life like for women? Did they have any rights? Did they have any power? Strangely, they have a certain amount of power, partly because the workforce is small and the labor is infinite. And in situations like that, women tended to make advances of various kinds. So for example, um, at this moment in Boston, a great number of taverns are run by and owned by women. Um, women are allowed to mine potash. I mean, there are all sorts of strange exceptions made for women because we need the entire labor force to be employed. If you look at the court record, women are very, these are, this is a really litigious society. Women sue a lot and they often win um, and they will press any case. I mean, it's an equal opportunity court. Everyone is suing everyone. Um, women are very often pursuing their inheritances and winning in court. So there's a certain amount of latitude for women. On the other hand, the labor is infinite, as I say, and there is a huge, you're, you're essentially either bearing, nursing, or raising children, and you, the work is constant, both for the girls um, and for the mothers. And the girls have before them the examples of mothers who very often die in childbirth. So the whole obsession with, mortal, with, mor, with mortality, which Puritanism engages anyway, is a little more heightened, I think, um, for a girl who's watching, who's often living with a stepmother, which is part of the fairy tale feeling here, and whose mother often risks her life every time she's pregnant. You know, uh, life for children. It's pretty dreary. You know, <laughs> it really <laughs> sounded harsh and miserable. Uh, children, you write in the book that, um, I think it's in your book, uh, that children were so sometimes kidnapped by the Indians. They, they would come and take children, which also happened in the West, I know. and. Uh, when the children were allowed to be set free, they chose to stay with their captors because the life was better with the Indians. Now, is that? Wow. Leslie Stahl reads footnotes. I just want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. Um, any number of captives, and this was, was male, was boys as well as girls, um, will elect to stay with the Indians because the Indians actually let kids be kids. And there are no, you know, they, they're very specific on this subject. And they have to, one child is um, rescued and he actually escapes from his family to go back to his Indian <laughs> captors um, because he's having such a better time. And, the, and, and women's lives as well seems to have, seem to have been, um, there seems to have been less of a burden on women in terms of Indian culture than there had been. Cotton Mather and several ministers wanted to make sure that information didn't get out. So. <laughs> so you put it in a footnote. <laughs> um, 
Okay, well, let's skip up to the trials because uh, scores of women and then men are being accused and they have very formal trials, as you said, uh, with the educated men presiding. Um, so tell us what, first of all, what were some of the accusations? What were some of the specific accusations? It begins with accusations about um, poisoning an ox or um, enchanting hay or creating a hole in the ground that wasn't there previously or moving a line of trees from one side of the field to the other. You know, just, they're, they're usually not, there's no plague, there's no fire, there's nothing particularly dramatic about some of these acts. They're, Moving trees is not dramatic? I guess, you know, you make a good point. <laughs> but, you know, you don't, you don't reverse the winds or anything. Or is it, it isn't the... Um, often it's afflicting children. And in, in this particular case, obviously, because we have these convulsing girls and those afflictions will spread to a group of really eight core accusers, um, it's, the, it's the troubles that these girls are experiencing that's a great, that come to the fore in terms of the accusations. Over the course of the first couple of months, a new narrative begins to emerge from the accusations. And people are being accused left and right of um, trying to encourage their, trying to force their neighbors to sign diabolical pacts and to enter into league with the devil, which is what a witch is by definition, and to engage in um, a sort of subversive diabolical Sabbath. And ultimately, um, it will be clear by the end of the summer, not only to subvert the church, but also to subvert the government. So it turns out, it turns into this kind of grandiose conspiracy, although it had begun simply as um, torturing small children. Was the fact that they were Puritans, I mean, that must have been a huge factor in the, that everybody believing it and this thing catching on the way it did. Certainly, the, if you look at where which accusations bloom in America, um, in North America at this point, and where Puritanism has spread, there is a perfect overlay. Um, the idea of two ideas: the, the, the diabolical pact is a very Puritan conceit, and the um, the idea of conspiracy. It comes very naturally to a Puritan for whom um, meaning is very important, and everything is imbued with meaning, and the sense of being. Um, a flock in the wilderness implies that there is a predator at the gate. So for many years, any New Englander had been hearing any number of sermons about the nefarious Irishmen who were about to disembark in Boston, or um, more legitimately about the Native Americans who were about to come screaming out of the bushes. Um, but that sense of being under siege by forces who were less pure than you um, and who really were out to make sure that you did not, that you, that you were eradicated, um, is, is very pronounced. You write that you couldn't find any huge historical event outside of Joan of Arc that was started by teenage virgins. And this made this especially unique. It's, you know, the whole book strikes me um, to be a story about adolescence in so many ways. Um, partly because you have these girls who were really running the show. They aren't necessarily the ones who supply the names, um, but they are certainly the ones who are pointing the fingers. They are the ones who are being given agency here. Everyone is listening to them, listening to every one of their words. Um, whole neighborhoods are gathering around their beds um, to hear what they have to say. The court will, at several, on several occasions, appeal to the girls to say, could you explain to us how this witchcraft thing works, as if they are the authorities? 
Um, by the end of the summer, they're being treated as visionaries, and people are carting um, relatives to see the girls, relatives who are ill, to, to see if the girls could determine who has bewitched the relatives. So they're really running the show here. Um, so, and I say, I say adolescence in several ways, partly because it's their adolescence. Um, and at the same time, it's the colony's adolescence because there's a political um, tension going on with the mother country by which the, the colony has proved itself to be a very disobedient, um, disobedient bunch of settlers, and they feel that London is kind of the clueless, far-off authority, the way parents can sometimes seem. Um, and the ministers themselves are feeling as if they can't quite live up to the first generation, this is the third generation really in America, um, can't live up to their elders. So there's this sense that they too need to prove themselves um, in some very adolescent way. So I feel like it's an adolescent um, contest on several levels. Did, did it ever come out that the girls knew they were faking it? I mean, you're talking about these trances they'd go into, they'd be uh, sort of all caught up in paroxysms of pain and wailing, and they'd say they, they'd find marks on their bodies. Did they ever admit that they created this whole thing, that they made it up? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Sure. No. Um, there's one apology later. There's one apology later. Um, it's a very, it's a stunning moment. Anne Putnam, who's one of the first girls um, afflicted, who's a 12-year-old at the time, when she enters into church membership years later in her 20s, um, will offer an apology to the congregation. But it's an interesting apology in that it, she basically says she was under a delusion at the time and she wasn't properly guided. It's almost a sort of finger-pointing apology if such a thing exists. Um, and, and like many people afterwards, she will essentially say, the devil made me do it. So it's, um, it's kind of a half apology. One girl who confesses um, to witchcraft, a 17-year-old, will recant while in prison. But the authorities will not accept her recanting. Um, and in fact, put her in a dungeon. <laughs> and they'll put her in the dungeon for it. So that's her reward. Yes. Really? Yes. Wow. What, what was accepted as evidence of witchcraft, or, or, or that a woman or a man was a witch? Here's where science plays a real role. Um, any unnatural mark on your body, which of course is such a rarity. Um, any mark on your body? Anything. A anything. flea bite, a mole, anything that looked unnatural. And these people are examined very carefully to find these marks. Bite. Because that would prove that you had either, that was either the diabolical mark that proved you were in confederacy with the devil, or it was the mark from which you nursed your demonic familiars, which could be cats or dogs or turtles or weasels or, or canaries, which were a big favorite. Um, you're, a witch could not cry except three tears from her left eye. This is very scientific. Um, you couldn't recite the Lord's Prayer. And what's, what's fascinating with the Lord's Prayer is that any number of suspects who come into the court are asked to do so, and all of them stumble, which tells oh, you something about the pressure wow. these people were under in front of these imposing men. And only when someone, who the minister who will hang, is going up to his death, um, does he manage to recite the Lord's Prayer without flawlessly? And there will be this moment of shock as to, wait a minute, could we possibly be making a mistake here? Because it's very, it's understood that no witch could possibly pull that kind of, could, could possibly say the Lord's Prayer properly. Oh. oh, that's chilling. That's chilling. There was an assumption of guilt. No one could have a lawyer. If There were no lawyers in America, which is why the court moved so quickly. <laughs> they often didn't know the charge against them. 
till they got into court. These trials were something, and the girls were in the trials, moaning and, whoa. I, you wonder how this country ever became a nation of laws when you read your book, really. A few years before this, a letter had gone to England which said, um, could you send us some honest lawyers if such a thing exists in nature? <laughs> um, but yes, and the girls being in the courtroom was like having a corpse in the courtroom because the girls are able, the girls are so tortured, so certain of their accusations, and so dramatically um, in, in such anguish that no one can disbelieve that the witchcraft is at work. So anything that a, that a, that a suspect says um, essentially is is trumped by, these, by the contortions of the girls. What struck me was how they, they accused the most pious sometimes, um, members of the clergy, as you pointed out. Nobody was safe, really. It was a reign of terror. And pe people lived, and husbands accused wives. And children accused. Well, I did notice that husbands accused. Husbands are amazing. From among the first couple of people accused, both husbands will immediately say, "I always thought she was a witch." Um, it's astonishing. And there's a women. and that's a his, there's a history of that. The, the a woman who had been accused of the last witch to have hung in New England in Boston Common, in fact, in 1688. Its husband also had had said, "Always knew it myself." Um, no wife seems to accuse a husband, as far as I can tell. But, but yes, um, brothers, sisters, um, servants, their mistresses, um, parishioners, their ministers, pretty much the accusations fly in every direction. And you can make yourself insane trying to figure out the pattern here. In many cases, people had been suspected or accused years earlier of witchcraft, um, or they were descended from women who had been accused. In some cases, there are definitely political rivalries. Um, there, are con there are lawsuits that have not been fully, um, where satisfaction has not been you know, fully got in court. Um, there are various reasons someone who sits in someone else's pew might have been accused, but it's not always possible to discern what the reason was, because it's, it's much of it just local gossip, which obviously doesn't come down to us. Right, right. You know, if uh, one of the most shocking things was how many of them confessed. A lot of these women, the women confessed. What, do you, what did you make of that? You know, it's, I was just actually thinking about how easy it is to accuse when I was thinking, you know, anyone who lives in a New York apartment building knows that there's always that neighbor, right? <laughs> so, um, there's always a problem with some neighbor. Right. Um, the, the confession comes fairly naturally, first of all, from in a spiritual context. It's part and parcel of the religion. And everyone has a stain on his or her conscience. So when people start confessing, um, they don't always distinguish um, between what we would consider guilt and what they consider diabolical collusion. So, for example, one of the first women who confesses, um, one, of the, one of the first women who's accused, says, I heard a voice in my head telling me not to go to meeting. That was clearly the devil talking to me. We would think of that as a guilty conscience. Um, so that line is very permeable between the two. Um, many people were told that if they, I'm thinking about the girl who recants, that if she would only confess, she would be spared the dungeon. So there was a reason to not, to, to confess. Um, one girl rides to court with her minister on one side of her and her brother on the other. And all the way, all along the way, both are saying to her, we know you're a witch, we know you're a witch. And she's saying, I'm not a witch. And by the time they get there, she's just assumed that they must be right. Um, and she, by assumed. The, she, she assumed. She took it on. Yeah. And by the end of the summer, um, some, of the, some of the other 
confessors often will harass the other women, the new arrivals in, in prison and force them to confess. And by the end of the summer, people are being tortured to confess. And they have figured out that if you confess to witchcraft, you will live. And if you don't confess, you will hang. So there is an added incentive to confessing. Yeah, but I thought that if you did confess, you were condemned. You're you... condemned, but nobody seems to be hanging. They go back to prison. Oh. Okay, yeah. they go to prison, which is almost, almost as worse. bad as being <laughs> hanged. And we'll talk about that in a minute. I, I, can you talk about um, the, the lack of documentation? You are obviously, by all your books, a prodigious researcher. You dig, you dig, you dig. And you write in the book that no matter what you did, you couldn't find very much. People didn't leave diaries about this. People didn't leave letters about this. All the usual ways historians find out what happened at the, kind of the grassroots level. I'm sure that one of the attractions to the subject after Cleopatra was fabulous. This time I have documents to work from. Um, well, that wasn't so true. Um, the trial papers are missing. We have the hearing papers, we have accusations, we have warrants, we have depositions, we have some execution orders. We have no trial papers. Um, they seem to have disappeared in the 18th century. We're not really sure what happened to them. They're gone. Um, but you knew there were such things. We know, they, we know that a record book existed because there are references to it. And these people are maniacal record keepers. So for something to be missing is truly extraordinary. Um, you might be reading along in, say, one of the most influential Boston ministers sermon books, and you'll realize that although all of 1691 and early 1692 is there, the summer of 1692 is missing, and then 1693 picks up immediately after. It's as if the, mi the middle of the year never happened. Diaries skip over the year. People who are extremely meticulous diarists um, will suddenly go silent for these months. Um, the, the, the church record book for Salem Village was rewritten to leave these events out of it. The people who will um, die on the gallows are not mentioned by the minister, although those who die other deaths are. So the blanket of silence um, falls on the Was it a conspiracy? Did somebody direct this? I think that just the shame and the blame is so, the shame and the regret is so general. I mean, it's impossible to say it was a conspiracy. It feels like a conspiracy, certainly to the, to the historian. Um, the, the, the need to make this go away and the feeling of regret um, that is even expressed by husbands who have accused wives immediately afterward. Um, I mean, when you think about how difficult the return to normality must have been when girls went back to living and little girls went back to living in households where they were now orphaned because they had accused their mothers of witchcraft. Um, it's a you can see why one would want to pull a veil of silence over this, over this entire summer. Why do you think it's one of the moments in American history that captures our imagination so much? Partly I think it's, um, this is, a, this is, we're always obsessed with our origins. And in many ways, these are our founding fathers. They don't look like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. Um, but there is a, a strain of this in our DNA, which comes out more often, I think, than we might like. Um, secondly, it's like, a, it's like a locked room mystery. We can't figure it out. And I think that irritates, about it, irritates us about it, that we repeatedly go back to it looking for an answer, looking for a simple, elegant solution to make sense of it. Um, I think partly demonic talking cats, how do you beat that, right? That's about as good as it gets. And it's a catastrophe. We always like catastrophes when they happen to other people, right? So, and it's also just, you know, it's so loopy. How could this have happened in this enlightened, 
educated. educated Bible commonwealth. We don't do these kinds of things in America. This happened, you know, for this to have happened in medieval Europe makes sense. We don't do this here. So I think it's so inconsistent with our sense of who we are and what and, and our it's history. A, it's our origin story. It's scary. Or the anti-origin, or yes, the origin we wish we didn't have, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about prison life, because I think you, you wrote that over 100 people ended up being incarcerated in the worst of conditions. Just horrible, horrible. One of the oddities of, um, of New England life is that you didn't really want to imprison people for too long because you needed them back in the workforce. So the prisons were extremely primitive structures, and they really were just holding pens. They weren't built. No one was meant to spend any time there. By 1692, that's a problem, and, and the jailbreaks are constant. If you read the, the court records for the earlier years, you see people basically can escape from jail with their bare hands. Um, so these are really ramshackle structures. In 1692, you've got an enormous number of suspects, um, of which suspects whom you've rounded up, and um, you really don't have room for them, and they're living in these tiny, in these incredibly confined spaces, because they are thought to be witches, and witches are understood to be able to afflict with a mere gesture, they're all shackled. Their hands and their feet are shackled. Um, and, it is, and, and these are obviously very fetid, very cold in the winter, and broiling hot in the summer structures. Um, an oddity of life at the time was that, as a prisoner, you paid for your own blankets and provisions and hay and shackles. So when you got out of jail, um, your family had to pay the expenses that you had incurred in jail, and you bought your food from the jail keep. So there were some added indignities here. But the oddity is that well, for years, people had been breaking out of New England jails left and right. But in 1692, it was very difficult to do so because you were manacled. You're talking about old women and babies. There's a, yes, and there's a five-year-old homeless girl, exactly. And there are women who give birth under these conditions. Yeah. I mean, it's shocking. It was also pointed out to me, and this is almost too gruesome to mention, that the shackles could not actually be unlocked except by a locksmith. So, oh my I know, horrifying. Well, I don't know why I felt impelled to it, add that in. It's, it's, as you said to me on the phone, it's really grisly stuff, really horrible. Well, let's talk about a couple of the individuals. Um, when you and I had our pre-interview, pre-pre-interview interview, um, we talked about doing a couple of profiles, and you picked a couple. So who, where should we start? I would, say, I would say George Burroughs, because I find him irresistible. Um, George Burroughs is the former Salem Village minister um, who is thought to be the diabolical mastermind behind this plot against the church and the state. He's about 42 years old, and he, um, he's on the one hand an extremely stalwart, loyal, heroic figure, and on the other hand, he's very perverse, um, he's very contentious, and he clearly has abused his, his many wives. His wives keep dying, um, and so I, I didn't. And he's he's at the moment that he's arrested um, on the main frontier, where he's been heroic and and then several times protected his parishioners. He's accused by the girls in the village, and he's brought back to Salem for his hearing and ultimately for his trial. And his crimes, and again, he's the outlier. It's very hard to say why exactly is he accused. He's left his parishioners under very contentious circumstances. He has, he's a very small man, and he seems to have an enormous amount of strength. Cotton Mather calls him a, puny, a very puny man, but he is able somehow to wield a seven-foot musket, and he can lift whole barrels with a single hand. And that strength, which had once been so admired, now seems like wizardry. 
So um, that makes him suspect. His house is said to be haunted. One of his wives had said the house was haunted. And he seems to have developed a reputation for being able to read the minds of his wives, which since all they were doing was complaining about him, couldn't have been all that complicated. <laughs> so all of these things, and, and, the, and one, of, one of the things that will happen at his trial is that for the first time ever in New England history, ghosts will begin to flit around the courtroom according to the bewitched girls and, those, and women. And those ghosts are the ghosts of George Burroughs's dead wives come back to extract vengeance from him. So again, it's a story about women getting getting even in some way. Um, but Burroughs will walk into this courtroom, his hearing room, expecting to be able to reason with these men. He too is a Harvard-educated minister. He's, he's been a colleague of many of these men. He speaks in the same, we have letters of his, he speaks in the same scriptural terms. And yet when he walks into the courtroom, the girls will, will say, he's biting me, and they'll show the bite marks on their arms, which are then compared to Burroughs's mouth, and the judges will deem that indeed the two match. Um, nothing he says, as, as happens to everyone who appears before the, before the justices, nothing he says can seem to trump the evidence before the, eye, before the court in terms and of whatever, what's happening. Whatever the any of these people say, the answer is the devil. What, the devil did it, whatever it is. If they, if they say they're innocent, it's the devil's making them do that. I mean, Extraordinary. And, at, and at his trial, he will finally, as if playing his trump card, um, produce a piece of um, writing that he's, that he's written. He has friends. That's the other interesting thing about Burroughs. People come to see him in prison and clearly try to help him. And he copies out a piece of manuscript, which is essentially a skeptic's take on witchcraft, which will, which will hold witches are rare. Witches exist, but they are rare. And under no circumstances can they afflict anyone at a distance and that he will be accused of plagiarism <laughs> in the court for producing this shocking and obviously rather offensive document. Um, so he will go to his death at the end of the summer. But first, having been credited with being at the center of this conspiracy, he's thought to be, several girls will separately say that George Burroughs is not only a wizard, but he's above a wizard, he's a conjurer. And he, so he has special powers. And he will go to his death, and it is he who, on his way up the gallows, will recite the Lord's Prayer flawlessly um, and suddenly send terror into everyone's hearts that they've made a mistake. You know, you write that he was in one of those little carts that we see in our minds, the, the group of women going to the gallows. And he was one of the first men and went in one of those carts with all the other women. And they were always looking so haggard and bedraggled because they'd all come out of these horrible conditions. And the idea was to make sure that a crowd turned out to watch them ride off um, because this was a public sentence and a public spectacle. And obviously there was an educational aspect to this as well. Tell about Rebecca Nurse. Um, Rebecca Nurse is a very pious, very well-loved farm woman in her early 70s who comes from one of the few families that never seem to sue each other. Um, from, a very, from a particularly stable family, all her children have survived, everyone seems to get along. Um, she's an unlikely person to be accused in the first place. And when finally she does go to um, her trial, for the first time and the only time, the jury will deliver a not guilty verdict um, to great rejoicing. The Chief Justice, however, is dissatisfied with that verdict and he sends the jury back to re-deliberate. Um, which tells us something about the Chief Justice's take on the evidence at hand. The jury will re-deliberate and return a guilty verdict. Um, at this point, her family, who are um, very united and very active, 
we'll appeal over the court's head to the governor for a reprieve, um, which will be issued. So for a second time, she, is, um, she has happy news. That reprieve will be overturned by one of the Salem justices. We don't know which one. Um, and she will be sentenced to die, um, which she does. She hangs. Oh, my God. Who's the woman who uh, goes to prison with her infant? That's the beggar woman, Sarah Good. One goes to prison, and they shackle the baby? Mm -hmm. There's a bill for the miniature shackles. Yes, it's quite terrifying. Okay, now, I don't know if this audience is up to it, but tell about <laughs> Giles Corey. Oh, boy, Leslie, we're on a grizzly roll here. Take it, do this. Giles Corey, um, one of the men, I should begin by saying, who knew his wife was a witch before she was accused, one of the first men to say, yes, I suspected something was up with Martha, um, turns into a, suddenly turns into a much more compassionate character when he himself is accused shortly thereafter. Um, he's, a very, he's a very combative man. He's been on poor terms with his neighbors for years. He's often been involved in disputes. Um, and he's clearly a very stubborn man. And when, when hauled into court, um, he refuses to do what you're obligated to do, which is to enter a plea of either guilt or innocence. And he stands mute before the court. Um, the sentence for that in 1692 um, was to be crushed under stones until you entered a plea. And I spent a lot of time looking for any other evidence of this. There was one other case a few years earlier where that sentence had been threatened, but where the suspect basically said, I'll, I'll enter a plea. Giles Corey did not. Um, and so we don't know maintained, where. Maintained his innocence maintained, to the very end. He wouldn't enter a plea at all. Um, as if he wouldn't play, he just, he, he refused to enter into this preposterous trial. I assume. Um, we don't know where, but it's somewhere he is then, according to English law at the time, laid out on the ground, um, and weights are piled upon his body in a probably two-day ordeal. Um, he's allowed a few bites of bread and a few sips of water until he enters his plea, which he never does. Um, and that's a few days before his wife will then go to the gallows. He's just crushed to death, slowly. And you know, for the hangings the it's whole time. It's not that sad a book, is it? <laughs> no, that part is pretty gruesome, pretty gruesome. The, the, the whole town would come out for these hangings. I want the audience to have a chance to ask questions. So let's cut to the end quickly. How did, how did it end? How did this whole thing stop? Because we know it did. A number right? of things come together. In part, the, the, the numbers simply become improbable to many people. Um, the accusations have begun to reach a much higher level. Um, one of the ministers who's involved, who's intimately involved, wives is accused, the governor's wife is accused. The numbers just begin to seem preposterous. Um, in the early part of the summer, anyone who, who maintained any kind of skepticism, who voiced any kind of um, criticism, generally was rewarded with a witchcraft accusation himself. By the end of the summer, people have begun to speak out, if only tentatively. Um, even a very influential Boston minister, when he wanted to register his dissatisfaction with the court, was forced to do so anonymously. Um, the governor has begun to suspect that perhaps he's not getting the best judgment in the world from his ministers in Boston, and he reaches out to the New York ministers, who are a more moderate crew, and who suggest that perhaps the trials have not proceeded according to proper law. Um, Things like petitions from the court and the crushing of a man under stones have begun, to, have begun to make an impression. And the fact that it's beginning to be fall and no one has tended to his fields and stocked his cellar for the winter may have something to do with it as well. <laughs> Get them out to work. But the aftermath. Um, 
how, how did this community, with all this ugliness and neighbors accusing neighbors, how did, how did it ever move on? How did it get back to a position of, I don't know, what, normalcy? There's a, I should say, by the way, there were a few heroes who finally do speak out at the end of 1692, and, and it's as if the Enlightenment has finally dawned, and you see the, you see the lights go on. Um, a committee is formed in 1710 to somehow, so many people at this point have petitioned for redress or who have asked the authorities to make good on what has happened in 1692, that a committee is formed in 1710. And they begin to try to settle claims for people who've lost family members, for people whose property has been confiscated, for people who spent um, enormous sums in prison um, fines and, and, and paying prison, for prison stays. Were they exonerated? Um, everyone is exonerated, including the sheriffs and the jail keeps. Not, not all the accused witches, however, are exonerated. Oh, that's what I meant. Not everyone. And moreover, the monies are not distributed in ways that make everyone happy. For example, a 14-year-old girl who's accused both her parents somehow manages to make off with a fairly nice sum of money. Um, a man who accuses his wife is very amply rewarded for having done so. So not everyone is thrilled with this, and we don't have a lot of evidence as to what happens, but it's very clear from Cotton Mather's accounts that this does not entirely calm the mood in Salem afterwards. So there, there seems to have been a certain amount of tumult afterwards. We don't have a lot of documentation on it because no one wanted to talk about it. All right, you see that there are microphones at the front of each aisle. And if anybody wants to ask a question, please stand up at, in a line at the microphone and we will call on you. Um, so I heard that the last witch was just pardoned. 14 years ago. 14 years ago. Yeah. On Halloween. <laughs> it was, really there's an interesting back and forth with as Massachusetts girls, we can relate to this. Um, there's, there's an interesting back and forth over the years. There are six women who were never exonerated because their families essentially were not around to make sure that they were. And over the years, there would occasionally be efforts to get Massachusetts to make right. And one of the best ones is the one, which I think is the 1957 attempt, where the, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts basically decides it, it, it was not Massachusetts in 1692, therefore it is not in its jurisdiction to pardon these women. So. <laughs> But they were at, on Halloween. Let's take yes, how, how and when did word get out to the world beyond Salem about these events? And when did it become a sensation? When did it become a very big deal that this had happened back then? Um, word gets out slowly. And I kept thinking there would be documents. And this is, a, again, a hole in the record. I just assumed that since everyone involved is one or two at most three generations removed from his English family, there would be a great deal of documentation in the British archives. It's very, very little. I mean, there's really almost nothing. The governor does not write back to London. The governor arrives in May. He doesn't write back to London until October. And that's really, and that's when the court has been shut down. And that's really the first report that um, anything has happened, that there's been this epidemic, as he puts it, of witchcraft. Or he, as he always refers to it, witchcraft or possession, because he's not entirely convinced the only people who seem to be writing about it um, with any regularity are the Quakers, who, needless to say, are delighting in the prospect of seeing Puritans attacking each other, because it, it, it's like, well, now they have a taste of their own medicine, having done this to us. And there are a couple of letters of, um, of Quaker onlookers who are basically um, looking at this, not entirely surprised, but, but, but discussing what's going on in the colony of Massachusetts. People were clearly frightened into silence to some extent. 
and it's some time before anybody's willing, it's several generations before anybody's really willing to talk about what happened. And it became a sensation at some point in the 1700s, 1800s? It becomes or, a sensation. Or did it wait until Arthur Miller? Who puts it on the map really is the South, uh -huh. because during the Civil War and during the entire um, discussion of slavery, the South had one great piece of shrapnel to aim at the North. You may accuse us of slave owning, but at least we didn't burn witches. <laughs> And, and that, I think, is where this idea that we have that, that New England burned rather than hanged witches came from, because the South really keeps lobbing this back and forth. Thank you. The Puritans were obviously extremely religious, yet the Ten Commandments sort of go by the wayside. Why did they ignore their religion and condemn people uh, to death when they spent most of their lives li uh, living in this entirely religious life? Um, in fact, c condemning a witch um, was part and parcel of the religion. Um, and the idea that thou shalt not allow a witch to live um, is, in, is from scripture, exactly. So their feeling here was that they were following the Bible um, to the letter. Um, and there was literalists. No, they're complete literalists. I and mean, what's hilarious is when you look up property disputes between families, they're literally quoting scripture at each other about where the boundary between the two properties should be. Um, the, the, the attention to, to detail the, the word from the pulpit, this is, that is the only shared form of communication. There are no newspapers. Everyone knows, if you have a book in the house, it's the Bible. Everyone knows those pages. And you can see the imagery um, that is being absorbed at a Thursday lecture or a Sunday sermon re-emerging in the witchcraft testimony. I mean, this is really completely in the drinking water. But the idea that, um, that witches existed, that witches were in league with the devil, and that witches needed to be eradicated is, comes completely from Scripture. And the presidential candidate, Carson, hasn't made comments about this? <laughs> you know, I will say that the faith, the faith and evidence, the, 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 the inability to reconcile faith and evidence does seem still to be with us today. <laughs> oh, I wanted to ask you why you were so tough on uh, Judge Stoughton, but instead I want to ask you, 50 years from now, a future historian asks you for a new direction to write on the Salem Witch Trials, might you direct them in any particular area that you haven't felt 100% satisfied with or you want to pursue further? I would say that these documents are so rich that every time I go back to them, I still see things I didn't see. I mean, for example, Titiba's testimony, they are hanging on her every word. I mean, and it's also a fascinating reversal there, right? You have a black slave or an Indian slave. Um, everyone is, there are three court reporters sitting there poised to take down her every word. They know that whatever she's about to say is going to be sensational and incredibly valuable. Every time I read those pages, I notice something different about them. For example, she barely mentions God. Um, she's a really good storyteller. Um, I would say two things. I would say the Swedish witchcraft, which plays a huge role in the book and which colors the entire episode. And I would say, and I can't get enough of him, Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather just writes so many times about, the, about what happens this year. And every time you can just you notice that he just turns the lens a little bit to the left. And if you actually compare those accounts, you see a fascinating evolution of who's to blame and what actually happened. Thank you. Thank you. I think when I first studied this, this period, it surprised me how much, how quickly this is over, that this, this flares up and then is, burns out and is gone. It's, it's not even a year. 
Um, I've read a lot of people talking about this in terms of economic um, readings of this period, that a lot of the witchcraft was against property, against property lines or someone's cow or someone's barn. Uh, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, that was the theory, and, and it's, a, it's a very good one of Boyer and Nissenbaum, whose terrific book was basically about how you could, you could draw a map to see where the, accus where the accusers lived and where the accused lived. And, and Arthur Miller uses this to some extent, too, that people are essentially um, lusting after each other's properties. Because, because property disputes are as central to New England life as pretty much anything could possibly be. It doesn't, the economic lines don't really hold up. Um, and if you, if you look at, if you redraw the map a little more accurately, you see that those, those things don't entirely correspond. Moreover, nobody makes out well here economically, except the very venal sheriff at the center of the crisis, who's always manages to be on someone's doorstep the minute he's accused, um, and who will cart off the cattle, the, the mattress, the bedding, and the pot um, as soon as he can. But he seems to be acting alone and not in collusion with anyone else. Um, he also dies very young. The devil again. Having grown up in Danvers, uh, ah, one of the, uh, the other folks. That is Salem, were, right? That yes. Is, that's where the Woods Falls Isn't were. Isn't it? That's it the is, very place. Yes. Uh, one of the other folklores was that the, uh, the women had stones tied around their neck and thrown in the water. And if they sunk, they, I guess they were a witch. And if they floated, they were vice versa. Is that folklore or did that really happen? Um, that was called swimming a witch. And they, you'll be relieved to know they did that in Connecticut, but not in Massachusetts. <laughs> so you are so off the hook. But, but, Cotton, but Cotton Mather believed, it sounds like a Monty Python sketch, right? But it's not. Um, Cotton Mather actually believed that swimming a witch was a legitimate, when Leslie asked what were the legitimate tests for whether someone was a witch, Cotton Mather subscribed to that test. Um, it was never used in Massachusetts. And everybody listened to cotton? Uh, on that count, no, but on most counts, yes, absolutely. Um, I've just learned in the last few months doing genealogy as a hobby that um, my sixth great-grandmother was Mary Parker, uh, one of the Salem witches, but she actually came from Andover. Why is it that people from a community like Andover were brought into this hole. We should have talked. We should have talked about this. Although it is known as the Salem witchcraft, ultimately twenty-four communities are affected, and the hardest hit is Andover, where one in ten people is accused by the time the summer is over. Um, and and by the way, not really discussed in Andover. Salem really seems to have a lock on this story. Um, think about the Andover tourism that could result. But. Um, <laughs> But what happens is by the time the story, and the girls are naming people they have not necessarily met, and in, in most cases have not met. They're just naming names that other people have mentioned, we think, or names that are in the sort of rumored headlines. It's hard to say. By the time the accusations spread to Andover, the confessions have begun. So at this point, when, when, as soon as Andover is affected, it's confession after confession after confession. And needless to say, under those circumstances, it's, it's moving at an even, at a more accelerated pace. Um, the minister, of, the senior minister in Andover will discover that he's related to, I think, 36 witches. Um, his entire family is accused. Wow. It's been suggested that uh, there might have, plant blight may figure into uh, the notion of witchery. Uh, ergot, I believe, is the term that's applied 
and uh, correlations with uh, witch trials in Europe and infestations of this plant blight. Uh, and it's been suggested that possibly may have been in existence in Salem. Did this come up in your research you mean like it, at all? It poisoned them? Or? Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful 1976 theory that the rye supply had been poisoned, had, been, had grown a fungus, and that that, um, that fungal um, ferment causes hallucinations. And needless to say, it's interesting that this theory came up in 1976. Um, so... And it's a great, it's a, it's a very, again, a very elegant and simple theory, which is the kind I think we would like to apply here. Um, it fails to account for a lot of things like why some people are affected and not others, why the girls remain in robust good health sometimes and not all the time. I mean, they're not hallucinating all the time. And also why they don't deteriorate, their health doesn't deteriorate in any way. And moreover, why when they're hallucinating, they seem to be seeing very, they seem to have synchronized hallucinations. You'd think if you were hallucinating, you'd be coming up with, diff, you know, with pink turtles as opposed to black cats. Um, everyone seems to be on the same page in terms of accusing George Burroughs of being a conjurer, for example. Um, it's a very elegant theory. It also lets everybody off the hook. Um, it means that there's, this is not about human folly. This is about an external um, force, which I think we would all prefer to believe. Stacy, of all the... Uh, subjects out there you could explore. What prompted you to take on the witches? I would say uh, demonic talking cats had a lot to do with it. <laughs> um, Likely a Cleopatra, this was a subject where, where women really play a crucial role. And I just was shocked by how ignorant I was. This is a really seminal episode. We see, we see so many echoes of this. You know, we're living in an age of terrorism. We're, you know, again, we're terrorized by one force, but we're firing at another. Here were people who were under siege by, by Indians and Frenchmen, and any, you know, any number of other forces, and they're and they're trying to, you know, aim their guns at witches. It's, you know, it's exactly the same thing, kind of thing that we do when one country attacks us and we invade another, for example, or, you know, just to name, you know, I don't know one example. It seems so incredibly relevant to what we were living through today. It's really, it's in many ways a book about, um, about how we deal with anxiety and fear. I have, to, I have to ask you the final last question to bring it home. Mass hysteria. It, it, it is, is it human? Is it American? We see rashes of things like, well, suicides, but also what's going on with Muslims today. Uh, we, you can come up with any number of these moments of epidemic proportion group activities that seem bizarre. I think did you go? Did you think about that? Did you study that? I, I didn't study it, and, I'm, and it's not my specialty, as you know. But I, I do think. I mean, think about how every country reacted to Ebola, for example. We all buy into this. Social scientists seem to say that we buy, we are more likely to buy into some story if it's vaguely bizarre. That if it's if it seems normal, we're not quite as likely to be conned by it. But but a legend that has a slightly crazy or loopy aspect to it seems somehow more reasonable to us. So the delusional thinking, I think, is a constant across the board. And it is human. I, I fear it, it, like the tribal instinct to want to sort of eradicate, you know, the unwanted is somewhat human. So it could happen tomorrow. <laughs> but we have lawyers. You're amazing. <laughs> Stacy, you're amazing. Thank you, Leslie. Fabulous. Leslie Stahl, Stacey Schiff, thank you so much.
I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. We thank you all for coming. We thank all of the members, the donors. We always appreciate all your support. Please stay for the book signing. Um, Stacy will be signing books on the Central Park West side. Our museum store is on the 77th. Before you all run, just let's see a show of hands of the members. All members, okay. Thank you. Holidays are coming. Great gifts membership. Thank you all for coming.